world-class media, this is World Class. I'm your host, Travis Chappell. Here on World Class, we combine value, entertainment, and behind-the-scenes insights to bring you the most comprehensive view of what it takes to become world-class in what you do. Listen in every week as I have conversations with top business leaders, journalists, hostage negotiators, authors, comedians, producers, you name it. If they're the best at what they do, I'll have a chat with them. I believe that the best way to become world-class is to learn from those who already are. And that's exactly what we do here on the show. You'll learn the skills that you need to master, the mindset that you need to adopt, the work you need to put in, all from people who have walked the road before you. So get ready to learn, be motivated, and most importantly, have a good time because you're listening to World Class. Welcome to the show, man. Super, super stoked to have you on. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Of course. You know, this is actually uh, a unique interview for me because... My personal development journey started probably like a year and a half to two years ago, maybe maybe three years ago if you count the early days of it. Um, before then, though, I grew up in a real estate household, and my dad, who's sitting over there, uh, worked for has worked for Keller Williams for about 13 years now, I think, um, and then had a decade in a different brokerage before that. So it's not just uh, the the books that you've written and stuff haven't just had an effect on my life. It's been the entire company that you guys have built here has been kind of in my DNA since you know I was a early on teenager. So um, it's been really, really long time coming to be able to sit down with you. That's cool. We actually um, hear from people on our team, like the people on our team members, we started inviting their spouses and kids to some of our events. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's very different when they get to hear it for the first time firsthand instead of always hearing it Exactly, from, from the person that's involved in it. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. So I want to jump right in. Um, like I told you before we hit the record button, I like to talk about some stuff that not a lot of people get into with you. Sure. Um, in preparation, I always try to do as much research as I can and see where we can take the conversation, so I'm excited to get into it. Um, one of the things that intrigues me about your story is that you call yourself intrinsically just an author, right? Mm-hmm. So an author that just kind of ventured into the real estate world and not the opposite. And I feel like most real estate authors, it is the opposite. It's they're in real estate, so they decide to write a real estate book. Yep. Um, so talk to me about why, why being an author was so important to you. Gosh, I've always loved books. So um, part of our conversations before this, like you know I'm kind of an introvert, and that came from a very young age. I was a late growth spurt. Um, I read a lot of books thorough nerd before being a nerd was cool like literally Dungeons and Dragons in the library in 5th and 6th grade kind of thing Um, and um, I don't know so books was always my refuge and so I always loved books I didn't think of it as a profession but I majored in English I worked in bookstores in college um, went and got a master's in English and ended up working in publishing so up until the point I started working with Gary Keller I didn't think author books were just kind of my go to I always loved them okay and our relationship started with a writing job. I and see. so, I mean, it was random that I got into real estate at all. Do you think that being a quote-unquote nerd in high school was tough or easy or totally just not even relevant? I mean, I've got two middle schoolers right now. I don't think middle school is easy for anybody. <laughs> um, and kids I know can be that cruel. I kids out, can be cruel. Oh, yeah. I think we were good. Um, okay. The kids that I fell in with all made better grades than me. Um, they were all like student council president, captain of the track team, wow. not football team. They right. were kind of in the secondary. So um, they called our table the intellectuals. I found that out many years later. Really? Yeah, because I actually we all, had a name for it, like had, in the movies. Yeah. <laughs> it was a small, I mean, relatively small high school. My graduating okay. class had like 110 people in it. Oh, okay. 
Um, gotcha. So not exactly a one-room schoolhouse, but right. it wasn't these giant high schools that kids go to today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So everybody knew everybody. Yeah. Um, but we had our own identity, and we could kind of we could hang out with the band people, or we could hang out with you know the jocks. Okay. So we we moved behind it. So I don't think I had a particularly burdensome yeah. middle school, but I had the same growing pains everybody does. Do you still keep in contact with all those people? Those are some of my closest friends. Okay. I find it interesting. Uh, my dad and I were just talking about this last night, actually. I was the same way. My graduating class was the largest to come through the school. I think it still is, actually, when I, um, my high school graduating class. And we had 42, I think, graduate. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting because I feel like a lot of people don't keep in contact with some of their high school friends. But we knew each other. My, my three or four best friends, I've known them since we were four years old, went to kindergarten together. We went to, we graduated eighth grade, we graduated high school. Like, they're lifelong friends. You know, even if you don't see them for a while, you can sit down, have a drink with them, and just you know. A lot catch of shared up, experience. Like, right. My yeah. my oldest friend goes back to third grade. Wow. Um, yeah. But we also time. had good fortune. Like I had um, a high school buddy from seventh grade or so on. Mm-hmm. When I went overseas, I lived overseas for about three years, mm-hmm. and he was living there. And I it wasn't by accident uh, that no. I went to Paris. Um, it felt like an easy choice because I already had a friend there. Gotcha. And gotcha. then we ended up becoming roommates. And then some of our high school friends that we're also friends with in college, because we all ended up in college close together, would come over and visit. And then my friend in New York, that third grade friend, we kind of reconnected when I moved to New York City, Hmm. and we became roommates there. Really cool. And so life, I mean, I don't know if I'm making these decisions because it was easier because I had friends there, Mm -hmm. or if it was just a sweetener, but that allowed us to reconnect at pretty pivotal moments. Right, right. Would you say that, um, would you say that friendship in those regards has been more of like an escape for you or like a sharpening tool? Well, I think early on it was a sharpening tool because they all made better grades. They were all uh, more popular. Um, The story I've only told a couple of times. Um, I ran with this group of kids, right? Mm -hmm. And they were all elected for senior superlatives. And I was at home sick with like 102 degrees of fever. And I remember the, the secretary at the school called me up and said, Jay, we're taking pictures for senior superlatives today. You need to come in. I was like, I didn't know I was just one. <laughs> and so I show up and we're in this room and I've dressed up and I'm, you know, not feeling well. Right. And it starts off and there's like, you know, 17 kids in there. And then they pair up, you know, this guy and this girl, best dressed. This guy, this girl, most successful. This girl, this guy, right, whatever. You look up and there's five people and then there's three people. And then they call the two people and I'm there. <laughs> And um, the joke was, I was most likely to almost be a superlative. Um, so, like, that was mostly because of the people oh, I hung out with, funny. right? And so they just assumed, because all of my friends were there, that surely Jay's in that group, too. Gotcha, So gotcha. they definitely forced me to play up. That's really, really interesting. Well, we'll, we'll get into the networking conversation a little bit later. It was mortifying at the time. I can laugh yeah. about it now. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah. yeah, that wasn't something that you enjoyed going through, yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, so getting back to the whole um, the books thing, the author thing, um, you have said in a couple different instances you were obsessed with Sherlock Holmes growing up. Yeah. Talk to me about that obsession. Pretty early on, I enjoyed being kind of a know-it-all. Like, I've always been obsessed with trivia, um, two majors, two minors, almost three majors in college. Like, I was... I spread myself around, which yeah. is the opposite of what our book was about, <laughs> right. which is why the story comes up. But... I looked at Sherlock Holmes. I read everything about and by Arthur Conan Doyle. Okay. And I um, was fairly obsessed with this person because, um, you know, he could shoot guns. He knew how to do karate. He also could, you know, figure out the distance from the earth to the moon, mm-hmm. you know, on, mm-hmm. a, 
envelope. Like yeah. he had the science, the art, all of that all wrapped up into one. Yeah. You know, the classic Renaissance man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that appealed to me. I grew up in Tennessee, you know, like, oh, so I'd like to be able to go hunting and butcher a deer, but also write a sonnet, sonnet mm. right? Yeah, right, right. Um, I don't know. I think that was mostly it. He seemed to have no limitations, yeah. and that appealed to me. What do you think about the movies? Did they do, did they do uh, the author any justice with the movies? Well, the new Robert Downey Jr. ones are totally fun, awesome. and they're yeah. very entertaining, yeah. um, especially the first one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the, the old school, I was into Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce, was the original duo that kind of nailed it. Even okay. though a lot of people that are serious Sherlock Holmes fans kind of were offended that Nigel Bruce was still kind of a clown as Dr. Watson. Oh, uh, I see. And okay. Dr. Watson, as in the new movies, mm-hmm. is kind of a badass all by himself. Right, exactly. Um, yeah. The best, of course, is the um, British series. I was going to ask you, okay, so that one's, that one's your favorite, hands down, even over the, the Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, movies? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. My kids are even into it. Gotcha. Was, yeah, that, that was the only ones I could get them into. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, interesting. Cumberbatch interesting. just nailed it. Yeah, he does a fantastic job. Do you have a favorite episode in that series or anything, or no? No. Just like all of them? No. Nope. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> Just a big fan. I'm not yeah. one of those, like, baseball card fans. I can't okay. do stats and stuff. Uh, okay. But, like, when we went to London um, with the kids this past summer, everybody knew that, hey, let's see if there's a Sherlock Holmes tour. And, of course, we did it, and we had fun, and I learned some new trivia and this really and cool. that. Yeah. yeah, awesome, awesome. So coming from childhood always resort to books, resort to books, resort to books. It shapes your future, literally, because yeah. you go get an English major. Um, and then w- w- when you went to college, was it in the same town that you grew up in, or did you move to a different state? Yeah. The, um, my sister is the big extrovert in the family. Okay. And so this is relevant. I'm actually going to answer the college question. <laughs> okay. um, I had kind of like a George Bailey moment where like, I wanted to get away. Okay. Um, all my whole family is from Mississippi. I grew up in Memphis on the border of the Delta, Gotcha. And I kind of wanted to go to the Northeast. I wanted to go away. Mm-hmm. And my sister's wedding was um, the day after my 17th birthday. And she invited, I want to say, 250 people to her wedding. And 350 showed up. And then almost <laughs> 500 showed up at her um, reception. And my dad was basically in shock when he got the bill. No kidding. And that was right about the time. You know, I had been accepted to Boston College. I'd been... Okay. Um, I'd been, I think I looked at UMass as well, um, William and Mary. I'd looked at all these schools up there that I'd kind of wanted to go to to get away and do the Northeast thing. Mm-hmm. And um, I also had been offered a full scholarship to Memphis State. We called it Tiger High. Okay. It's now University of Memphis. Okay. Gotcha. And um, he said, if you will take the scholarship, because he paid for my sister's undergraduate. He says, if you'll take the scholarship for undergraduate, I'll help you out with grad school. Because at that time, I thought I was going to go to law school. So the oh, Sherlock okay. Holmes thing had manifested in a minor um, in legal thought and criminal history, you know, criminal right, justice right. or whatever. And I thought maybe lawyer was in my future. Hmm. And I was like, well, that's a deal. Yeah. So I stayed home um, and went to Tiger High. Got it. Got um, it. But that worked out because all of my friends went to Rhodes, which was just down the road, and we all stayed connected from high school. Okay. Do you, uh, do you feel like you could have made a pretty good lawyer? Yeah, I think it would have worked. Yeah. I think I like to um, learn about things deeply, okay. right? But I like variety within my little groove. Mm-hmm. So what's great about books is like I get to keep working on my craft, but every book is a brand new thing Different. to throw myself into. And as I understand it, um, law can be that way too. You okay. can become a master of a vein of it, but mm-hmm. every case is its own little problem to right. solve. Right. Um, 
What I also you know it? a lot of people who've gone to work at law firms who now are history professors. So right. it could right. have been a culture clash, and I wouldn't have liked it. Mm-hmm. Right. But, what, what, what made you change at the time? I think I looked up, and I went overseas, and the, the writing bug went out. Okay. Got it. And so I applied for um, writing programs, got accepted at NYU. And at that moment in history, like I don't think I even apply, I did not even apply to a law school, though I doubt like an LSAT prep book and stuff, mm-hmm. never mm-hmm. took action on it. Because I think okay. by that time, what I thought I wanted to do early in college, I kind of knew I didn't want to do by the time I'd lived abroad for a couple of years. So you've talked about getting out, going to the Northeast, you talk about living abroad, you talk about traveling. How important to you is travel and and not just in the context of having fun and stuff like that but also in the context of gaining perspective and personal development in and of itself yeah there you go you're going right where i was headed um the first date i had with my wife we're you know figuring out who the other person is and i found out she'd been backpacking all over europe for like six months and had been backpacking in egypt and syria all by herself as a you know Back then, it wasn't maybe as scary as it is today, but it was still tough. Yeah. Single woman backpacking alone. Totally. And um, I was very impressed, and we were talking about our experiences in Turkey and all this stuff. And I had lived abroad, and I had been backpacking. And for me, it changed my world. Growing up in the Mid-South um, with a family, educated family, but from Mississippi, like your worldview is very small. Mm-hmm. And it is hugely important for us to move out and see the world from another perspective. I remember when Clinton was being elected, I was in Paris. Okay. And I was going to all the pre-stuff there, and let me guarantee you, in Memphis, Tennessee, there were no pro-Clinton you know, parties. <laughs> no? Right. In um, super conservative South, yeah. right? But mm-hmm. then I was exposed to all these people that were doing it from the other side, and yeah. I just approached it with curiosity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was great to see that whole culture, um, how fluidly people were at switching languages. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we could drive to 10 states from our hometown. Right. They can drive to 10 countries. Right. Same geographic distance, but they got to experience whole cultures. And I kind of soaked all of that in, and it was important to me. It was, I immediately realized it's important to me and whoever I'm having a relationship with. Mm-hmm. And luckily, we, we've been dragging our kids all over the world. I was going to say, so uh, do you have a country count to how many you've been to? Or you I have should. A, a ballpark no. anyway? No. No. We, did, we have our bucket list, and we ask, you know, based on where our kids are, you know, okay. like, where we, should we be going at this yeah. age, you know? What about, like, regions? What are your favorite places to go to? Like, do you, if, if you travel, do you go back to the same spot because you like it, or do you always go to a new spot because you want to see everything? A little bit of both. Okay. I'm naturally nostalgic, you okay. know? I could do the same thing every week for date night. Yeah. My wife wants variety, and that's where we balance each other out. Mm-hmm. So um, we spent five months... We quit our jobs and spent five months in Italy backpacking. Oh, wow. And a lot of it was around a house in the mountains where we got to stay for free. And that allowed us to prolong it. So we've been back there maybe four times. Okay. So like, definitely want to go back to places that are special and that remain special. But we're always like, you know, hey, you know, my daughter's really into dragons. I got a chance to go speak in Jakarta. That's not very far away from Komodo Island. And, mm. you know, you start putting two to two together and you've got a dream list. So yeah. I want to go to every continent before I die. That's the every only continent. bucket list I have. Okay. Um, but, you know, I've knocked out, I still got uh, a few places to go, including Antarctica. Wendy really, says she won't go, but really? I will go by myself. Really? <laughs> That'll be a very interesting one. I'd be, be very curious to hear your thoughts on that after that happens. Um, a little bit earlier, you were talking about, about travel and about how much, 
how you were open to new perspectives. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's important to note because I don't think that everybody goes into it with that idea. So they might go to somewhere that would have a different perspective. Like you were saying, Bill Clinton is being elected and where you were from, not a lot of supporters. Maybe where you were, there could have been a lot more. Um, but some people that go into that have the mindset of, no, 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 I'm right. I feel conflict, I don't like it, I'm going back to Tennessee. Do you think that it is just a mindset shift or a personality thing? Like, what, what do you think mindset. that might be? Okay. I don't think that's like a, a genetic thing. That's okay. definitely a nurture thing. I think some people are more comfortable with change than others or more open to change. Okay. Um, I mean, we've got two kids, one that would try everything and one person that wouldn't let their foods touch each other. <laughs> and it's a little bit of nature, a little bit of nurture, yeah. but like, I kind of was the kid that didn't let their food touch each other, and now I'm the person that mixes it all up. And I okay. think we all can evolve and open up. And yeah. I saw some people join us abroad and very quickly kind of let their barriers down and see things from a new perspective. And I saw people who went into protective mode. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think part of that comes from if you spend a lot of your days reading books, mm. you're, it's one of the ways that you get to see new worlds through someone else's eyes. Mm. And I can remember um, as part of that curiosity bug, right, yeah. is going and I love to read novels based on where I'm traveling. Got it. Right? Got it. I don't yeah. read history books on where I'm traveling, but I can read novels because I like to pick up those extra bits. Yeah. Um, but I can remember my college roommate, um, a guy named Scott, um, we became obsessed about being writers. And most writers experience the world passively. Right? That's the whole idea of reading the book. That's a passive way to travel. Mm -hmm. yeah. And we became obsessed with writers that also, like Hemingway, they went and fought in a war. And mm. like, yeah. We've, yeah. So pretty early on, I kind of wanted the mix of, I wanted to explore, I was gonna do some through books, but I was absolutely gonna do some with my feet. Got it, got it. So you were definitely a combination of fiction and nonfiction growing up? or All fiction. All fiction, okay. Yeah. It wasn't until pretty much I started working with Gary that I really actively started reading much nonfiction. Okay, so did you have an idea that you were going to write anything nonfiction? Um, no, okay. I didn't. I thought I might edit it. I did a lot of editing okay. around that when I was got in it. New York. Um, and I developed some skills around that. How was yeah. that experience? It was great. It was eye-opening. I got to see the business, the the business book world up close and from the inside. Mm. Um, like a lot of things, I appreciated it more with distance. Okay. Yeah. Um, we called it the salt mine, HarperCollins, because they made editorial assistants do everything. Yeah. And in retrospect, I got to do everything. <laughs> right. So I got right. to negotiate contracts. I got to guide books through production. I got to oversee copy editing. I got to write copy for books. I got to edit books. I got to acquire books. And so it was great because as a future author, I didn't know that then, mm -hmm. I got to see the whole process. During that, during that time period, was that something that was ideal for you or was it just like, I, gotta, I, I wanna get a job, I wanna learn more about this, so no, I'll I take wanted the to first work thing. in books and publishing seemed like the dream job. Okay. And okay. it's great, when you're in New York City, I had friends that worked in music and like we worked in books and like they would send me CDs and I would give them free books and mm. You know, a lot of those jobs in New York, we called them um, high prestige, low pay. Okay. Because a lot of people wanted to work in publishing because they love books. Mm -hmm. And when you've got a line of PhDs outside the door willing to take your job for less, they don't ever pay you very much. <laughs> and Makes so sense. it was yeah. tough to live in New York City doing those jobs, but you also got to go to book parties and meet authors. And yeah. if you're a book nerd, that's great. Right, right. So what prompted the move out to Austin? Um, when my wife and I got married, um, this would have been, uh, we met in 97, got married in 99. Um, we quit our jobs 
and we both wanted to travel. We thought, okay, we both are, I wanted to move south, being okay. from the south. I was kind of done with being poor in New York. Okay. She was ready to change because she's always ready for a change. She Got would it. move on a moment's notice anytime. Just loves the variety. Right. And I just said, well, why don't we use this transition period as a chance to go travel? And so we quit our jobs, threw all of our stuff in storage. It was like 200 bucks a month, which was nothing. So we had no rent, no obligations. We didn't have any debt. Um, we both had been responsible up to that point. Mm-hmm. And so that allowed us to travel for five and a half months on our honeymoon. Wow. And while we were out there, we were debating where we would live. And um, we had narrowed it down to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, because I had a connection um, at a publishing house there, Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. And I thought they did Southern Gothic fiction and cookbooks. And I was like, I could go edit those books forever. I was still thinking editor. Hmm. And Wendy, um, growing up in Fargo, going to school in Wisconsin, she had gone to spring break on South Padre Beach in Texas, which is totally unexpected. (laughs) Um, But that was like the closest beach. And they would have these long caravans, and they would always stay in Austin. And she goes, let's go check out Austin. Hmm. So um, at the end of 99, um, early 2000, we left New York. We were couch surfing, came to Austin. Um, It's raining right now, but in uh, January of that year, it was like 80 degrees. Okay. So we had none of the right clothes, (laughs) and we just looked around and said, this place is really awesome. Hmm. And we just moved here without jobs. That's how we made the... Migration. So literally just moved, didn't have a job, just liked the area a lot. And this yeah. was back in... We 90- never visited Chapel Hill. It was supposed to be the next stop, but we came here, fell really? in love, and just much. moved here. Okay, so 99, 2000. So this is before Austin was, like, booming. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, Austin's, like, the number one fastest-growing city in the country or something. When we moved here, um, I formally moved here, drove down from New York in February of 2000. Mm-hmm. And at that time, there was no skyline. Wow, um, Really? Later, I think that year or the next year, the Frost Bank Tower went up, and that was the first tall building downtown. There was no downtown retail. There was 6th Street, um, but none of the stuff that we think of today, and it's just been evolving. It's been evolving the whole time we've been here. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. So a fun ride. Timeline from that point, you move here, were were you just like, and I got to get a job. <laughs> so you just like started going around and finding something or was it really calculated? I don't want to work for somebody unless I really feel like I'm going to be a vibe for that culture. What was that like? Not calculated. Okay. I mean, I just turned 30. So like, I don't know. At that point it was like, I need a job. <laughs> I kind of, I got kicked out of the house. Okay. So I was freelancing um, and not making any money. Gotcha. So I think my tax return for 2000 was like $14,000 in gross income. <laughs> Um, but I got published by Texas Monthly, so I had some, again, high prestige, but I was thinking mm. I wanted to break into freelance. And being kind of an introvert, um, I wasn't making any friends. Mm. I was spending all of my time in our apartment, and I just remember Wendy coming home is like, you got to get a job, partly for the income, and partly it's like, you need to get out and meet people. Yeah, right. And right. that's how I ended up um, taking a job at a real estate firm. Okay. Um, there wasn't any big publishing here. There was Scholastic Publishing, and I didn't want to do that. Yeah. So I was going to be a newsletter writer, like in one of these companies, and that would allow me to freelance, but I would also, you know, I'd have a place to go five days a week, and I would meet people. So is that what you did here? Yep. Newsletter writing? Yep. I joined as a newsletter writer one. Really? Wow. Um, okay. Back when Keller Williams was really small, I think there were 27 employees the day I joined and 6,700 agents. Okay. And today there's like 180,000 agents. Where would that put them in ranking 
they weren't being ranked. Okay, that's maybe fourteenth or fifteenth nationally. I mean, big, right. but not really on any kind of. Na- they weren't. They weren't national by any means. Okay, and did you have any idea at that time that it would turn into what it is today? Oh, no clue. Okay, I just took it. It was a, a harbor in the storm. It seemed interesting. Um, you may be familiar through your dad, but we have a crazy hiring process. Mm-hmm. So I'm applying. I've got one book that sold six million copies, right, that I edited. I've mm-hmm. got this great resume of best-selling books, mm-hmm. and I'm applying for a job as a newsletter writer. And I went through, I think, six, six different interviews to get the job. <laughs> and I had to take two behavioral tests. Yeah. And I remember going home to my wife, and it's like, I think this place is like a front for the CIA. <laughs> There's no way. This is a franchise real estate company. Right. So, like, the process and how deliberate they were really intrigued me. Hmm. Um, Which speaks to the amazing culture, I'm assuming, right? Well, I mean, nobody's perfect at hiring, but they, were really, they really wanted to curate who got in yeah. um, and build a very specific culture. That's one of the gifts that Gary had. And it, it wasn't for a couple of years before I started working with him. Mm-hmm. And that was when things really, I started to see that there might be, this might be a place I stayed. Okay. Before uh, then, I was still just, it was, a, just job. A, it was a job. Yeah. yeah. Get out of the house, cool go meet some people. But it was a job. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And it still gave you some flexibility to do some freelance stuff on the side and hopefully probably get into that more full-time so that you could quit the job and have actual income? I, or? Could, I don't have exact records. Um, my wife and I have talked a lot when we talk about wealth building, how we always had a side gig. Mm-hmm. And um, up until maybe the second book I wrote with Gary Keller, I continued to edit books on the side. Okay. Um, I think I was doing, after both kids, so this would have been you know, all the way up into 2005, I was still editing books on the side and making maybe 10 grand extra. Because I still had those contacts in New York, and mm-hmm. if they needed a um, freelance editor, I was happy to jump in. Mm, gotcha. And I got to do some soccer books, which was always fun for me. I was always a soccer nerd. Was that pretty, uh, was that pretty helpful for you in the wealth-building stage, having yes. a side hustle? Yeah, well, we had, um, we had goals, and using kind of one-thing principles before I knew what they were, like mm-hmm. everything summed up to we had to bank 1500 bucks a month. Okay. After all expenses, you know, anything else we were going to do with our money, savings, retirement, we were going to set aside 1500 bucks because back then, 12 months of that, we could buy a rental property. And the goal was to buy one rental property a year. Okay. But what, being was that a young goal? couple with travel and all right. the other stuff, like we always had to have extra because our mm-hmm. actual salaries, we didn't have enough. Okay, got it. Was that goal of buying rental properties something that Keller Williams in, instilled in you? Hmm. Absolutely. Okay, so no, no intention, no background, real estate, nothing at all, just... Yeah. Okay. Before it. I started working for Gary... Um, my dad was an executive. Um, he you know, grew up on a farm, um, worked on a truck at a public utility, went on after 25 years to become the president of that and then mm. become president of a medical company. So that was my, that's the path, Yeah. right? Work hard, keep your head down, treat people right, mm-hmm. be a leader, be an executive, get a high salary. Mm-hmm. And yeah. in 2005, um, Gary, you know, I got to write The Millionaire Real Estate Investor and part of that journey, I interviewed 120 millionaires. Wow. And it, completely opened my eyes. It's not about Mind income. Yeah. It's about what you invest. I mean, there's, that's a whole other it's not interview. It's about how much you make. It's about how much yeah. you save. Right. But it, right. it changed my viewpoint. And that was when my wife and I just said, do you want to give this a try? And mm-hmm. we just both went after it. Okay. So the side hustle was always part of the plan. The reason I ask that is it's something that I've it's been... no longer part of the plan. But back then it was... When it needed to be yes. in order to reach the goals. Right. Yeah. So that's something that I've been really trying to focus on with people that I know because I, I feel like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like the way that 
my parents did it the way that that generation did it is not going to be as available to my generation is me- meaning like I don't know about social security when I get up to being 60 70 years yeah. old I don't know how that's going to flesh itself out I don't know don't even know if it's going to be there like I, I don't I don't know with the with the influx of bachelor's degrees and master's degrees into the job market how likely it is for you to be able to go get a really high salary and be able to have the 401k that takes you through in your retirement so it's something that I've talked that I've been trying to convince people my age to say you need a side hustle like regardless of if you want one or not you need to get one because if you don't get one now you're gonna have to get one when you're 60 would you agree to that or can you speak into that I think at a certain time in your life, being willing to have a secondary income to supplement your first um, is totally okay. But at a certain point, I think you put all your eggs in one basket hmm. and you make that a rich and rewarding experience in itself. Got it. Um, you know, the one thing principles are really about the people who go all in right. tend to, at the end of the day, end up in the best place. Hmm. So in the beginning, like if you're an employee, the challenge is, you just can't go in and say, hey, I want to become an investor, so I need a raise. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you can't always control that outcome. Mm-hmm. So the whole idea of a side hustle works for me. If you are employed, this gives you a way to be self-employed hmm. where you can correlate your efforts to your income. Yeah. If I work hard, I get rewarded in corresponding you know, amounts because I'm hustling here. Mm-hmm. If you're already self-employed, focus on your your business your main thing why would you want to self hustle you know a side hustle if you're already a business person or self-employed hmm. um, I think that's a distraction so that would be at a really high level without going into someone's yeah, yeah, right. specifics that would be kind of what I think yeah. I was an employee my wife was an employee therefore we did side hustles because mm-hmm. that was a way for us to accelerate our net income got it and, and of course you need to be able to tailor this to whatever your goals are Right, so yeah. I would have more lofty goals probably than the average person, but if you sit down and you don't even know what your goals are, then you don't even know if you need a side hustle, and yeah. it doesn't ever register with you. But if you're sitting down and actually look at the numbers and, and think, man, I need to have two, three million dollars in retirement to be able to live a comfortable life by the time I'm 67 years old, with inflation factoring in the fact that mm-hmm. you know, gas prices aren't gonna be 265, whatever they are right now, and a bottle of Clorox isn't going to be you know, five, six bucks, whatever it is now, like it's going to be a lot more than that. So will you be able to actually retire and spend your time with your family instead of spending your time mowing lawns when you're 65, 66, 67 years old? Um, Can you talk about how important it is to set a goal and then reverse engineer what it actually takes to make it happen? Oh, um, we wrote about it. That was kind of one of my favorite parts of the one thing, this idea of goal setting to the now. One of my favorite parts. (laughs) Um, And I think when, you know, someone says, hey, I want to be a millionaire someday, if you're just working forward, you know, what does that mean in terms of how I'm supposed to behave this week, much less today? Mm. We might think of what we might do this year, but the problem with that is um, there are many, many options. Um, if you're willing to kind of venture out you know, five years and beyond and say, um, I want to be a millionaire by this time period and then follow the process, you know, based on that, what would I have to achieve in five years? And then based on my five year, what would I have to achieve in a year? And based on my year, like you work back in steps, mm-hmm. it kind of paints a straight line on milestones. It doesn't mean it's right, but it does eliminate a lot of the options because you've made the daring, you've been specific about a direction you're going to go in. Mm-hmm. And I find that that kind of declutters your thinking. And usually after a year of playing that game, your clarity about what it actually takes to get there 
every year gets clearer and clearer because of that process, and you're a lot less likely to fall prey to the low-hanging fruit. Yeah, and that's like a quick win. But if we don't have a destination, it could be taking us in the exact opposite direction yeah, from right. where we want to go. Right. Something that you said, um, I forget, in some interview or something that I, that I watched with you, you said, and I really, really liked it. I wrote it down as soon as I, as soon as I heard it. Um, you said in the context of, of like mission and vision, goals, different things like that, you don't have to be married to them right away. No. You date them for a while. And that might change over time. Because that was something that I was always afraid of. Is it was like, I'm going to set this goal. I'm going to set this target. This is my mission. I want to reach you know, a million people with my show, with my podcast. I want to show people how to network the right way. I, wanna, I want that vision to be super clear. And I want it to be that. But what if like in eight months from now, after I, I declare that vision, I get this other thing and I'm thinking man, well, that's actually really more of, of my vision. And, and, it, and it was intimidating. It was daunting to me because I was like, I don't want to appear to be a flip-flopper or like that I'm pivoting every three months or whatever. Um, and I don't think that you need to overstep that bound. I think that it's good to stick to, to one mission. But at the same time, you don't have to be married to that. Can you speak into that? Um, nobody's got a crystal ball. I mean, I can go sit down at a meal and the person who I am today, right now, cannot accurately assess how much food I should eat in order not to feel miserable an hour later. So if I'm at the barbecue joint, I'm always going to misassess, and I'm going to be miserable. <laughs> right? If I can't predict be super happy just the term. outcome of this one gluttonous meal, I mean, this should, I should know this, right? right? Like, we do that sort of thing all the time. Like, how in the heck are we going to know for sure that this path for you being a podcaster or for me being an author is actually going to be a winning path for us down the future? Yeah. But if you don't decide and you don't start down that path, you don't get any real information. Hmm. Um, one of my floating. favorite books that I've given away a lot of is a book called The Defining Decade by a woman named Dr. Meg Jay. Okay. And she coached a lot of people um, in that decade after college. That's what it's all about. And it's so paralyzing when you're not sure what to do. You know, She described it, if you got dropped out of a boat in the middle of the ocean and you know there is an island just outside of sight, if you just stay there, you are going to drown. Hmm. You have to start swimming, if nothing else, to eliminate a direction hmm. so you can choose the right direction. But staying there is never a win. Yeah. And that metaphor stayed with me because I think a lot of people, they get paralyzed in this moment of they're treading water yeah. Yeah. and they actually don't have forever to choose. Hmm. They're wasting precious time. So go eliminate a path. And I think Take something action. else you said, it shouldn't be the flavor of the week either. Hmm. You know, like... Right. Exactly. Again, borrowing from one of my favorite books, uh, Grit by Angela Duckworth. Okay. And living grit, we don't have to go in there with family. The, the thing she recommended is everybody has to have a hard thing. Mm-hmm. And so Wendy and I will go to the kids and say, we have our hard thing. This is what we're doing. What do you, they get to choose, but they don't get to quit. Hmm. So at least for like, you know, from the beginning of school of yeah, till right. Christmas and right. from the beginning of school in the spring till summer break. And for summer break, we've divided the year into these quadrants. And every quadrant, I guess if it's three times, it's not a quadrant, whatever that's called, <laughs> right, into segments, yeah. um, they have to choose. Hmm. You know, like my son's doing rowing now. And really? that's a big investment in time and energy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's actually having to take a bus downtown with his friends to be there. Yeah. And it's kind of a little scary for him, but mm-hmm. he doesn't get to quit. Mm-hmm. We have to support him. So I think that you've got to find that balance between stick with it long enough to kind of go through a down cycle and come up the other side. Right. And if it doesn't feel awesome, then maybe switch. Yeah. But if every time things get a little tough, you bail, you'll never find out. 
And going back to the, the swimming analogy, that would be true there too. If you just swim a little bit in this direction and then go, actually, I'm going to go that way, and then you go over here, and then you stay over here, you're always going to be in that same little radius and never find the island anyway. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Same thing. So yeah. that's a, it's all about purpose, right? Mm -hmm. And we do believe that if you can kind of identify um, why you're here, you know, the big question, it's right. only confounded, you know, mystics for 3,000 years. Yeah, like that's we're going right. to, yeah, no small problem. <laughs> um, most people don't know that answer, but mm. just date it for a while to go back to the beginning. You don't have to get married right away. Yeah. You don't have to tattoo it across your back. Mm. Go live it for a while, and, and you're gonna, it's going to evolve. Do you think a lot of that has to do with the way culture makes younger people feel if they don't have everything figured out by a certain age? That, that, with I don't a lot know. Of my friends, I'm a Gen Xer. You know, there was yeah. no pressure on us. Okay. <laughs> um, and I can't pretend to figure out what um, my nieces and nephew are dealing with and what my <clears throat> kids will. Yeah. I mean, I think there's probably going to be a lot of commonalities. Um, yeah. But like, this is a kid. You know, these kids today, they grew up with the Great Recession mm -hmm. um, in a post 9/11 world. I didn't. Mm -hmm. right. So I don't. I don't know. Yeah, be tough to answer. I can speculate, but I don't right. think I right. can say anything authoritative. Yeah. Okay, got it. So we've talked about it, hinted around it. Um, the one thing this year uh, is a fantastic book. This is one of the first books that I actually read in my personal development journey. I call Yay. it that because I, unlike you, was not a reader at all. And I'm sure my dad's over there smiling, laughing, because he tried to get me to read, tried everything to get me to read when I was a kid. And I just, I hated it. Like, it was literally like torture to me. Like, hmm. it, it was just, he tried this incentive, that incentive, just didn't like to do it. And I, I was always playing sports and doing that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, so it just never, it never intrigued me. If I, if I wanted to read for entertainment or something like that, I would just watch the movie. <laughs> That's yeah. always tell people. I was just like, if it, if it's a good enough book, they'll make it into a movie, and I'll watch it then. <laughs> so I tell people about it. We can hope so, to sell the movie, right? No yeah, looks yet. Yeah, but, yeah, we can hope. So when I started finally understand the power of personal development was a couple of years ago. After um, I had, I, it was after a success of mine, but after realizing that I didn't want to continue in that particular field uh, in in after the success mm -hmm. and so it was just like I just did a lot of soul searching didn't know where to do or what to do or, or where to turn so I just kind of audiobooks podcasts and all that stuff and this was one of the first uh, full books that I actually went through because I honestly if I read five books up to that period of time that I actually wanted like out of my own volition not that school made me read even though most of those I didn't read either right um, you just read the back flap and write an essay right so um, if I if I read five books that'd probably be a surprising number so Finishing a book to me when I started into all this was a very big accomplishment. And this is one of the first books that I did because of how captivating and because of how simple but profound the book is. We've already talked about one of the things, one of the biggest takeaways. Um, you say the word simple, and I'll just jump on. Like, if you look at all of our five-star reviews on Amazon, mm -hmm. like, the number one thing people like about it is that it's simplicity. Mm -hmm. If you look at all the one-star reviews, what are they complaining about? It's too simple. Really? So it's like, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. Like. People can't operate um, in complicated for long. That's one of the things Gary's definitely taught me. And so if you can keep things simple, mm. people can actually do something with it. So right. that was by design. It's, yeah. it's got to be simple. Got to be something that people can actually put into place, that yeah. I can actually practice. Um, we, we talked about one of the things that is um, a big standout takeaway as far as narrowing down your goals and bringing the goals to the now type thing. One of my biggest things, this was a total game changer for me in terms of my mindset around the whole issue, was uh, how you guys talked about discipline, how you broke down discipline, and basically saying that everybody has about the same amount of discipline. 
Mm -hmm. um, growing up, you see somebody, in my perspective, I would see somebody that was just insanely disciplined. They appeared to be insanely disciplined, like up at 5 a.m., read, they write 15 books a year, they read 48 books a year, they, but they're super productive throughout the day. They have every single minute of their day scheduled. It's like, man, I can never be that disciplined. I would look at that and say, they're just that way. They're just a disciplined person. Right? So after reading this book, it just was kind of a huge aha moment for me when I read through the fact that like, everybody basically has the same amount of discipline. The difference is some people discipline those discipline, like discipline that amount of discipline to stack habits on each other. Can right. you talk about habit stacking? Sure. Um, it was kind of a surprise for us. Like we, we thought that being a disciplined person was part of the game, too, for success. Mm-hmm. And um, the more we looked at it, um, we called it selected discipline. Okay. You, know, that you need just enough discipline to do something until it becomes habitual. Mm. And when you really look at the, that perfect guy or gal you're talking about that reads 48 books and writes 14, my goodness, right? It must be romance writer. <laughs> right. um, so you've got this person who seems to have everything going on. If you look under the hood, um, and that, I've not found any real exceptions to this, that happened over time, hmm. right? They might have started by saying, you know what, I'm going to set a goal of reading one book a month. And over time, that became, because they got better and better at that, Mm -hmm. they had the habit of reading every day, and they just started reading more. And now that's 48 books a year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And once that habit was established, they maybe added, hey, you know what, I think I could write more if I got up early. And so maybe they started getting up early, Mm -hmm. and that extra hour allowed them to write a little bit more. And over time, like... People just want everything to happen overnight, and we interpret when we see success as things that all happened at once and happened very quickly. Mm-hmm. So I mean, those I are the one-star reviews. Those yeah. are the people that it's too simple. It can't be. It can't be accurate, right? Because it's too simple. I'm fine with the one-star reviews <laughs> as long as they got the point. Yeah, you know what? That's the, the point whole, is is that it is simple. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and that's exactly. fine. And if that's right. what they need, um, and they don't need the rest, that's fine. I don't mm-hmm. read all of most business books. I'm flattered that you did. Mm-hmm. But most business books, I kind of get it by the introduction. Mm-hmm. And if it's really intriguing, I'll keep reading. Mm. But I'm, I'm reading nonfiction books for a reason. Not yeah. to say I finished them, but to learn something from mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. And so you focus on that. Um, so habit stacking, I mean, it's kind of the vogue now. It wasn't in 2013 when we came out. Yeah. But it does seem to be kind of the ultimate superpower. Yeah. If you can build the habit of building habits, mm-hmm. then... You know, every year, you know, statistically, you can, you know, 66 days is the average amount of time it takes to build one. You can build five new habits in your life. Mm. Um, I think there's a limit to how far you want to take that. Yeah. Like, how much of your life do you want to be that purposeful? I don't think you have to be that purposeful to have an amazing life. Some people will become robotic with it. Yeah, right, right. Um, But a handful of really strong habits can propel you in amazing ways in the things that matter for you. What What does an average day, typical day, look like for you and what are some habits that you really attribute a lot of your successes to? Um, I'm not naturally a lark, but I've become one. Okay. My kids, you know, we, having kids forces me to start waking up early, and I just mm-hmm. kept the habit even okay. after they started sleeping in. Um, and I've found that morning time um, to be incredibly productive. There, you know, nobody's calling and texting at 5 a.m. Um, it is free, open mental space for me and my wife, and so... Usually, most days, we get up early, get up at 5.10 is when I have my alarm set. Mm. And now it kind of happens even on the weekends when we don't set our alarms. I might sleep in until 6. But we're generally up early. Um, We work out uh, with the trainer three times a week. Um, We get to hang out with the dog. I usually will read for a good 30 minutes to an hour every morning. And I love that because I get to feed my brain. Mm. Um, Some of it's consuming news. Um, 
pretty carefully curated, not just like watching, you know, violence right. on TV news, <laughs> which can be very depressing. And, um, and then we have breakfast as a family. Pretty early on, we made a decision that um, we'd have two meals a day as a family, breakfast mm -hmm. and dinner. And we have exceptions, of course. Right. But kind of start the day getting that family energy, too. Mm. And then kind of the last thing I do most days is I look at my calendar. Okay. And so usually before 8 a.m., I've looked at what I have time blocked for my day. And based on my goals for that week, this is how I'm going to allocate my day. And I can look up and say, I need to get mentally prepared for the day I'm about to lead. All right. So, so. We, we talked about a couple of my favorite things in the book. Um, for those people who may not know what the overwhelming message of the book is, can you talk about the the way that it started, the origin of, um, of how you guys decided to put this into an mm -hmm. actual book, a handbook, and then what the one thing is in the book that you're trying to get across to people? Um, the book happened kind of by accident. We were working another project. This would have been back in 2008, um, right before Lehman Brothers, I guess. Um, okay. I was working on a course in KWU um, Gary was working with me. I was leading our education division back then. And he took it home for the weekend to write an essay. And I've told this story before, so I won't dwell mm -hmm. on it, because I know you like to have fresh stuff. But fresh, yeah. basically, he came back and had written a short essay called The Power of One. And I remember sitting down with him, and I said, you know, Gary, I think this is a book. Mm. And he goes, I thought the same thing. Yeah. Because it embodied, um, very distilled, you know, like 14 pages, um, distilled a lot of the principles that he held dear around being productive. Mm -hmm. And it boiled them down into very concise language. And which had obviously worked for him yes. fairly well. <laughs> and so um, that was the genesis, okay. right? It's like, oh, wow, um, this is not only a good idea. I saw in terms of my publishing brain, it's in perfect alignment with what I saw as his great strength. Hmm. A lot of people will say, I've got this idea for a book. Yeah. And I think one of the first questions, readers, I mean, people aren't looking for another book to sit on their bedside table. Right. Um, most of us have a pile of them waiting for our attention. Mm -hmm. So we often ask, like, what qualifies this person to write this book? Yeah. And so he answered that question very powerfully. Like, I could look at all of the years I'd worked with him and thought, wow, this is kind of his thing. Mm. So it's very congruent with his life. It's a very honest book. Mm. And then we spent five years working on it because we wanted to make it. Um, his, his practice became the hypoth hypothesis. And we had two full-time researchers out there finding data that supported it or disproved it. So really? some of it went away okay. and evolved, and some of it we felt like was supported. Yeah. And that's what became the one thing. Was there, was there a period during that five years, uh, I, think you, I think you mentioned you guys took a break from that. Well, when the, re the Great Recession happened, mm -hmm. I mean, he's leading what at that time was the fourth largest real estate firm in the world. Mm -hmm. We agreed that we would take a break and write a book about how real estate agents can navigate a shifted market. Mm. So our one thing changed, as we would say in the parlance of the book, okay. and we took about six months off to write it, and six another months, yeah. six months off um, where we were passively working on the one thing again, but we were trying to get that book out in the world. Okay, gotcha. Um, gotcha. So I like to joke, we were writing a book about focus and got very distracted, but it was warranted. <laughs> um, the Great Recession doesn't, hopefully it never happens again, right. but it was the right. thing that we needed to do. Yeah. Um, and the big idea here is that um, the things that will ultimately pay off the greatest in your life or the times when you will have been the most focused on what mattered most. Hmm. And it's not the only thing. It's 
what is the primary thing right now? What's yeah. the thing that you know you should be giving most of your attention and energy to? Mm-hmm. And it can change throughout the day. You know, I get to the end of the day and when we had small kids and it was time to read to them, mm-hmm. I don't need to be on my phone. I don't need to have a football game on. Like that is precious moments and my one thing should be present, right? Yeah, yeah. I wake up and I'm a professional writer. I should come into the office and my one thing should be reading and writing books. Right. And so it's situational and it can evolve, but it's a, it's a way for people to practically apply that principle. Like, how do I live that now? That's what the book is to me. How often do you, how often do you need to step back and look at that in terms of clarity? Like, is it something that you think about throughout the day? Like, am I really focusing on my one thing or did I get distracted? Or is I it get just- distracted all the time okay. and people delight in pointing it out. Um, <laughs> that's the, the hazard of being an author. Of yeah, yeah. About you're not working on your one thing. Yeah. And my, yeah. my kids, you're multitasking, Dad. Um, that happens. But yeah. the rhythm for me is weekly. You know, we set, uh, you know, we talked about our, um, before this started, for years and years, my wife and I have done a goal setting retreat. We set long range goals, five year goals, and one year goals. Hmm. And so that's like a weekend a year where we kind of go big. Yeah. And then the rhythm is every week we say, based on my annual goals, what do I have to accomplish this month and this week? Mm. And that's about 30 minutes a week where okay. I'll look at my goals and I'll look at my calendar. Um, my wife lives the same way. And we kind of say, based on where we want to go and where we are today, what does this week look like? Typically on a Sunday or? Friday or Sunday. Friday or Sunday. Um, okay. If I've got a quiet Friday, I'll try to get it done so I'm not disturbed on the weekend. But a lot of times, sometimes Sunday afternoon, I'll break out my laptop, get my calendars out, and just kind of sit at the kitchen table and plan out my week. Got it. Tell us about the goal setting retreat. Sounds really, really intriguing for those people who are really interested in that and might want to find out more about it. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier, goal setting to the now. Okay. And um, when we were working on this book very early on, my wife and I already had the tradition because we had two kids very close together. Mm-hmm. And she was building a business. I was building a business. It made life tough for a young married couple mm. that we just needed to get out of our world and get on the same page. Okay. So in the beginning, it was very informal. Um, she downloaded um, a one-page questionnaire from the internet, like <laughs> great questions to answer for your marriage or something. Right, right. And uh, we went on Priceline and found a cheap hotel downtown. It was the first time we'd ever spent a night away from our kids. Okay. But it was so effective in terms of figuring out like, where do we want a vacation this year? Do we want to save money this year? Do we want to give money to charity this year? What do we want to do for our kids this year? We started asking really important questions mm. without all the distractions you have at home. Like mm. the, the dishwasher's not going off, the dog's not asking to be let out, mm-hmm. and you can actually focus on them. And getting on the same page became very important, so it's become a much more formal process. So okay. last year we started offering that as a facilitated workshop, Okay, and we still do it. I guess this is our 12th or 13th year of doing it. Oh, wow. Yeah, mm. We've already got ours planned. We're going to Nashville. Um, spend two days working on our long-range goals, and that'll determine what we do in 2019. And then in late November, we'll have a class here in Austin where we'll walk other people through that. Okay, so that's in Austin. Yeah. What are the dates for that? Uh, Gosh, the November 16th and 17th, I I was going to say, or where can they find the dates for that? (laughs) It's on theonething.com. I think you have to go to theonething.com slash event. Um, And that's the number one. Yes, the number one. The number one thing.com slash event. You got it. Perfect. Perfect. If you want to, if you want to learn more about that, if you're struggling with goal setting, need clarity on goal setting, 100% recommend um, going over to to Jay's workshop. Um, so we've circled around, talked about a bunch of stuff here today, Jay. I want to end on 
the topic of networking because that is everything. Everybody's like, at last, yeah. <laughs> I'm here for networking, Finally. guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so if uh, if there was if there was one tip that you had centered around networking, what would that one tip be? Um, I think be purposeful, be systematic. Okay. Um, about when the one thing came out, I remember my, you know, I was building a business, my wife had a business, I had partnerships in two or three others, and I asked, what's the one thing I can do for all of these businesses? Hmm. And having written a book, that opens a lot of doors. I had people knocking on my door, and with my coach, we just said, you need to be purposeful about networking. Because hmm. you can introduce talent into these businesses, you can introduce business opportunities. You don't have to be the lead salesperson, but you can be kind of an ambassador for hmm. all the businesses that you're a part of. Yeah. And so um, under his challenge, because meeting strangers is not my idea of a good time, <laughs> um, I told him that sometimes I like meeting people for coffee. Okay. And so we agreed that every Wednesday was when I set it up, Wednesday mornings, I would meet a stranger that someone else had said was really talented for coffee. Hmm. And no agenda, just show up, learn about them, kind of like an interview, right? Mm -hmm. Tell me about yourself. Um, I hear you're a great designer, no agenda. And they got added to my database. Hmm. And so if I added 50 people that were talented to my database, like what would that do for the future of our businesses? That was what we did. Right. So the first year, I did exactly 50 and quit. <laughs> and I was like relieved. Yeah. Well, uh, that's done. Check it off my list. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was still very uncomfortable. And I was going on LinkedIn to try to find friends of friends. And it was hard work. Mm -hmm. um, the second year, I think I did 79 or 80. Okay. Because some of the people I'd met the year before said, hey, you should be my friend. Got this buddy, yeah. Right, and it started to kind of build its own momentum. And um, I looked because I knew we'd probably talk about this. So from 2013 to this year, we, I've averaged about 85 people. So it's oh. about 85 new relationships. And I mean, granted, sometimes I just show up and I find out I'm talking to a salesperson who mm -hmm. has no interest in knowing me and just wants to sell me crap. Right. But a certain percentage of them are awesome, and they're people that I want to stay in touch with. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so that's been kind of my very, my wife's a salesperson. The idea of okay. only having to meet one new person a week is ridiculous <laughs> to her. Um, but as an introvert, it's like, well, I've also made that a commitment. Like, right. I, I know that I can, that small domino, I can consistently knock over without fail, and I actually do better than that. Mm. But that's almost 500 people now. Right, right. And that's a much more powerful database, and it naturally evolves. So if I was going to say, like, reverse engineer for people, um, it started when I did something um, that was a little out of the ordinary. Mm. So do anything. Yeah. Um, start a podcast. <laughs> right? I mean, the moment you say you have a podcast, most business people are flattered to be called. Mm -hmm. It doesn't right. matter if you have an audience or not. Right. People will say yes. It gives you a reason to ask. So figure out something that's somewhat unique, that's a win for them, and that becomes your door opener. Right. Make right. a commitment to getting face to face with people. If that's what I mean, for me it was face to face. I think that's really rich. I'm comfortable doing this. I mm -hmm. feel more extroverted, focusing on one person. Right. Right. Um, I can fake it with a large group, but then I fall apart. <laughs> Those people started inviting more people, and at a certain point, like I only have so many mornings, I'm willing to actually go pay for coffee. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you end up naturally like saying, well, you know what? I should probably plan a happy hour. Hmm. or there's this educational event, like a goal-setting right. retreat or whatever, and then you start inviting everybody you've met to those things so you can see a bunch of people at one time. you got a meet-up that's coming up. Right, right. right. so like mm -hmm. it, it naturally evolved, and mm -hmm. last year, about, um, I guess, 14 months ago, um, my coach said, so great, you've got all these people in your database, you're seeing them kind of regularly, what are you doing to follow up with them? Hmm. 
didn't have an answer. <laughs> <Nothing>. <laughs> um, because most of them were more extroverted than me. They followed up with me. They dropped me a line. Hey, mm-hmm. what are you up to? Whatever. So right. I was definitely coasting. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, again, we came up with a plan and agreed that I would just write a monthly newsletter. Mm-hmm. Super personal, not professional, not salesy. And um, that was very uncomfortable for me in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I'm a writer, you yeah, know, it's, yeah. I just call it what I'm up to. It's usually five or six bullet points, real short and sweet. Um, and it's had really unexpected gifts. Like, first off, like in terms of a newsletter, it gets about a 47% open rate. Wow. And I don't, no one, I don't know when anybody unsubscribes. Wow. So of the 450 or so people that I've asked permission to be on that newsletter, mm-hmm. there's about 375 still on there. So some people said, hey, I don't want to stay in touch. Yeah. And I'm fine with that. Mm-hmm. But it's now become this place where if I have something really important, I can share it. Right. Um, and the unexpected gift, um, because I'm a goal setter and I'm always thinking about five years, whatever, I tend to live a lot of my present in the future. Hmm. And that's my orientation. Yeah, right. And um, what was really great about this is it forced me, I get to the end of the month and it's called what I'm up to. It's just what did I do to the last month? I actually have to reflect back on what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And that's been really rewarding because I've never been a journaler. I've never done anything like that. So it's okay. effectively become like a, a journal on a monthly. monthly journal, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's helped me, like, I've got old college buddies, like my old roommate from France that is now, almost every month he'll reply back and share something back. And it's definitely helped me stay connected. Yeah. yeah. So I guess it started with just being purposeful and it kind of naturally evolved. Mm-hmm. Purposeful, um, systematic. And I can't tell you how many jobs I've filled through that, mm. knowing that that group of people I could reach out to and say, hey, we have a marketing director position open. Mm. Do you know anybody? Right. Um, that group of people has been very rewarding for us, even though I just kind of built it just because out of obligation. If I'm right. a business person, I need to network. Right. I know that. It's just not going to happen naturally. Yeah. But you did it the right way, though. You didn't. The thing is, people want to, people, people want the well to be dug when they're thirsty, but they didn't do the work to dig the well, right? So they'll, they'll, they'll need a marketing director position filled. So then they just start going and to these networking events or they start having these lunches, but it's all with the agenda that you were saying you didn't have. Right. I mean, so if you come, always something it's trite, in the back of your but if you're, you've, already, you've already built up some equity in that relationship, mm-hmm. you can make a withdrawal. It's like a bank account. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And um, you've made some donations. And I, I just, I'll credit my coach. Yeah. You know, that's been very important for me. Those, there are things that I'm not sure I would have done for myself that either my coach or my wife has pushed me out of my comfort zone, and I'm always grateful. Right. Which is but, also a form of networking. Yeah, uh, and, and that's one thing. I, so this is a question I'm going to ask you in a second. I ask everybody on the show. Sure. Is the who you know versus the what you know. And um, one thing that I don't think most people think about when I say who you know, they don't think of it in the mentorship type setting. They think of it in the deal striking type setting. Sure. Whereas for me, um, coming into this world in the last year, year and a half, it's all been the mentorship type mastermind settings. Like I'm just, I'm just a sponge. I just want to meet people and I want to learn from them and I want to see what they're up to. That's all it is. But having those connections has allowed me to do that at a rate that most people won't be able to do that. Um, and uh, most, but, but a lot of people only think of it in terms of like, well, you shouldn't connect with Gary V unless you can strike a deal with Gary V and get him the New York Jets tomorrow. Like that's, but you're thinking about it the wrong way. You're only thinking of it in terms of a financial return into your bank account, which is not what relationships are because people separate them, right? They think like networking for business is over here, building friendships is over here. When in reality, it's really one big thing. Like you build friendships, some of them might 
be just a friendship, like maybe some of your high school friends. That's how it is for me. Mm-hmm. None of my high school friends really do any of the stuff that I do, but they're still my best friends. You know, whereas some of these other relationships that you curate, they're my friends, but now we do business together or we help each other out. We mastermind. They're, it's all one thing, and I think people get it. They compartmentalize a little bit too much. Yeah, but I can without, see that. without going into that too, without going into that too deep, let me ask you this question: Ask every single guest that comes on the show who you know, or what you know. Which one's more important? Does anybody say what? Knowing yes. it's a networking yes. show, just just to be contrary, or because they have a reason? Uh, they uh, sometimes they have a reason. Yeah, it's funny you ask that because when I started the show, that was like the question that I had at the very beginning, yeah. just to like lob one up so they can knock it out of the park, you know? Yeah. But I started getting all these different various random answers and uh, it's been one of the most intriguing things to me because it's kind of been a staple of the show and a lot of people come to hear what people have to say on that topic, but. I put who first. I do think there's a limit on that. Mm-hmm. Um, when I looked at the people I was inviting to my network, mm-hmm. it wasn't because of who they knew, it was because of what they were doing. Mm. And right. so um, there are people whose what is networking. And mm-hmm. the reason you go to them is they're a master connector. Mm-hmm. But if I just have master connectors referring me to people who are referring me, that'll get old fast. <laughs> right. What right. I want is a, a short path to people who actually do things that are kind of remarkable. Right. That's what I consider a talent network. Hmm. Um, I think that when you are in relationship with talent, talent tends to attract more talent. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you get Amanda Horvath, right? Because she's this great videographer, and I think she's talent, right? And mm-hmm. she's filming us right now, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm totally going to mess with her now. <laughs> and But you think, well, she probably hangs out with talented people. Mm-hmm. That's been my supposition. It proves to be true. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of what built into that. Yeah. Right. Um, right. Very few people get to be talent purely on their networking skills, mm-hmm. and they end up in HR. Right. <laughs> so, like I said, yeah. like I'm willing to go through the who, and that's really great. Mm-hmm. Um, and I look up, and I want to surround myself with people who are doing remarkable things and who share my values. Mm-hmm. And that's the who I want around me. Right. And there is some what built into that. So, I don't know if that's too confusing. Yeah, no, I, I, it, it's a very thorough answer because that's basically what I believe. I think. I think that it's who you know for sure, hands down. But you have to be competent and you have to always be learning and growing because if you just know a bunch of people but you never take the next step, then you're always just unimpressive but everybody knows you. <laughs> like you're just the guy that kind of shows up to the to the event and says what's up and people give you a hug but then if when that's you your leave, one thing, you that's fine. I don't want to judge it. I mean, I yeah, think yeah. that's your one thing. I know some people who are that person and mm-hmm. you better believe the super connector. I definitely right? am yeah. I'm on the phone with them and they can tend to be very entertaining, fun, great people to know. Right. Yeah, yeah. But there is totally. like a depending on what your ultimate ambitions are, I do think there is a limit to how far you ride that. Right. Um, right. I may be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but that, I think that's the biggest difference, though, is that when I ask that question, a lot of people don't think of it the mentorship capacity. They only think of it in terms of, hey, who can you do a deal with tomorrow type thing. And, and so yeah. a competence. That's transactional. Yeah, exactly. You're exactly. turning who's into what's. What mm-hmm. can they do for me? Mm-hmm. And that doesn't have a long shelf life. Correct. And Correct. those are not the people I You'll think You'll always to find call short-term success, with. but you're going to burn through people, burn through people, burn through people, instead of having real, long-lasting, valuable relationships with others. But... Your personal story is a fantastic example of how a mentorship type relationship fueled not even just your career, but your entire mindset. You like, like you were saying, just started investing in real estate. Your money mindset, your wealth creation, everything that you've built stemmed from a bathroom conversation with Gary Keller, right? Yeah, that's pretty much where it all started. I didn't expect that when I got into it. Yeah, but he's really purposeful, and you know, there's a model um, from one of his classes called Quantum Leap. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, I call it no one succeeds alone, but it's, 
It's a model for looking very purposefully at your relationships. And it asks the question, do you have mentors in these important areas of your life, a spiritual mm -hmm. mentor, a health mentor, a business mentor, right? If it's like on page 114 of the book, we go through the seven circles. Mm -hmm. If it's that big, right, it's a big part of your life, wouldn't it make sense to have a mentor or an advisor? Right. Somebody to mastermind there, with right. it. Yeah, they could give you real advice when you needed it because those are the areas that tend to matter most. Mm -hmm. And the other one, um, and this is where Gary's definitely fulfilled it, um, he talks about, do you know who you determine wealth for and who are your wealth determiners? Hmm. And it's a really different kind of question. This is more of a business, but like, um, in some ways, I'm a wealth determiner for Gary Keller because before me, he didn't write books and together we've been writing books. I'm not saying he wouldn't have, but that's yeah, just the right. way it turned out. Mm -hmm. And that's increased his reach and therefore he sees that as a reciprocal relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If my work in connection with him is creating benefit for him, he sees it as an obligation backwards. Okay. And frankly, now that I've seen that relationship, I wouldn't determine wealth for anybody who didn't see it that way. Right. There are people who will just take, take, take and never share. And then there are people who see that as inherently something that's got to be shared. Right, right. And for I guess about four or five years now, we've taken that. And when we do our retreat, I ask my wife, who are the five people who most determine our success? Hmm. And that's been a really interesting exercise. To, you know, it's actually like eight people. I, you're supposed to do five. We always cheat. <laughs> but it'll be like, these are the people that um, those relationships actually matter on a business level a lot hmm. more. So it might be your number one referrer. It might be your number one client. It might be an employee in your organization hmm. that you really rely on. But just being aware that some of those relationships matter at a higher level allows you to treat them differently. Yeah. Right, but right. I was thinking mostly about like those areas in your life that really matter. Like, do you have a mentor? Do you have a coach? I mean, mm -hmm. our physical trainer is our health coach. Mm -hmm. right, I know right. I always have someone I can ask, well, what should we do about our diet? What should we do about this? Mm -hmm. And that's there and it's present and I can always ask those questions. Yeah, and the, I feel like there, there's so many excuses for a lot of people, but the, the biggest thing to remember is like, if you're in the situation right now is, and you can't afford to go hire seven different mentors, there's something really cool. It's called YouTube. <laughs> yeah. And there's something really cool. They're called podcasts. And then there's a book like this, like mentorship and coaching and all that stuff has never, ever been as easily readily available. Um, and I, I think the reason that you're in a position to be able to hire those people is because you were also doing those things when you were not able to hire those people. True. I, I can't, I, some book I read once called, you know, all of the authors that you never got to meet, you know, they're your dead mentors hmm. and they're waiting on a bookshelf for you to have a long conversation with them. And yeah. that stuck with me because yeah. there's that information is always accessible mm -hmm. and you can learn from their life and their journey. Yeah. You know, if you want to read about Benjamin Franklin, there's probably like 10 amazing biographies you can mm -hmm. get read. Right. And right. you can have that conversation with someone who's done amazing things in the past. Right. Well, Jay, I could talk to you for a lot longer. I know you got to get going. I got to get going. Um, I got a couple quick things here for you. Uh, this is the random round. Just a few really quick random questions sure. with quick random answers. You ready? What profession other than your own do you think it'd be fun to attempt? Um, now that we've been doing a lot of it here, I really kind of think, what would have life been like for me instead of being an author writing words that turned into books, I'd been a coder writing code that turned into apps and applications. Hmm. Um, I naturally am drawn to that stuff, and I kind of think, I feel like it's the same part of my brain, I just haven't learned that language yet. Yeah. So I'm not right. saying never, but it might show up someday. If you could sit on a park bench with someone, past or present, and talk to them for an hour, who would it be and why? Um, I got one hour. One I think, hour. 
I, my answer to that was um, my grandpa Miller. He was somebody that we all looked up to. Um, he taught college, though. He never went to college. Gave me my love of books. And I just kind of think, unlike Abraham Lincoln or any of those other, he's actually probably been paying attention to my life, and I could get a lot more out of that hour. Yeah, than somebody like that. And it's also, like, what a gift to get to hang out with him for another hour. Right. right. How do you... I, pretty sure I know the answer to this, but how do you like to consume content best? Books, audiobooks, blogs, podcasts, videos? Um, it's like two answers to that. I mean, obviously I love books. That's enjoyment. I don't love reading nonfiction. I just do it because hmm. I know it improves me. Hmm. My favorite way to learn something is from people. Okay. And so part of the writing process and probably the part that I enjoy the most is interviewing people because I get to dissect what they're doing and then look for patterns. You know, you interview 10 people who climbed Everest, you're gonna see a pattern, and that's what I always am looking for. What do they do in common? What's that thing that they all did that I can also do? Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. Real bird's eye, because you kind of gave us some detail earlier. Yeah, I mean, we get up early, um, we work out, I read. Um, it's a lot of time with my wife, it's weird. That's a lot of the communication happens in those early morning hours with no you know, our poor trainer often is our therapist. <laughs> and um, we email as a family, and then I do some planning. I, I, I visit my goals every morning before I go into work. I don't want to show up to work and open my email and let someone else's priorities dictate it. But that's kind of hmm. all my days launch that way. Where they end up can be a lot of different places. What is your go-to pump-up song? Oh, I love music, but I like, it's funny, like the older you get with kids, like the less like specific it is. Someone asked me the other day for like an intro song and my immediate reaction was um, Sabotage by the Beastie Boys. I love that opening. Uh -huh. So it's probably, it's the closest thing I've got to a go-to. All right, and what is something that you are not very good at? So many things. Um, <laughs> because I've made a choice about being good at a few things, I'm very incompetent at many. Um, I joked earlier, I mean, I really am not very good at small talk. Yeah. Um, I go straight to deep topics, maybe before it's appropriate. Straight to the meat. Yeah. yeah Don't mess around with the appetizers. One-on-one, -on -one, no you get away with salad. it better. It's a little weirder at the dinner table. Right. Tell me about your dead mother, you know? <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm curious, yeah. and I don't really, I, that's always confounded me. Hmm. As we get everything wrapped up here, Jay, what is one place online where we are going to be able to find you the most? Um, it's easy to find me online. Probably the place I'm the most is going to be Instagram. It's kind of my little guilty habit as someone who works with words. Um, images are very easy yeah. to digest. Got it. So I'm definitely on there every day, and a lot of people reach out to me there. And that would be at... Jay, Jay Papazan. And Papazan is P-A-P-A-S-A-N. Uh, Jay, thanks so much for coming to the show today. Really, really had a blast chatting with you. Thanks, man. Yes, sir. Well, that's it for this episode of World Class. World Class is hosted by me, Travis Chapel, and produced by Eric Skorzynski. It is a world-class media production. At World Class Media, we produce top-rated podcasts for seven to nine-figure entrepreneurs, executives, real estate investors, and content creators. So if you want your own show, you have the budget to create one, but you just don't have the time or the team to figure it out, then go to travischapel.com slash make my podcast. That's Travis Chapel, C-H-A-P-P-E-L-L.com slash make my podcast. And let's chat to see if we'd be a good fit to work together. Thanks so much for joining us. Until next time, peace out and stay world-class. Thank you.